Thank you, uh, choir and orchestra and praise team for leading us today. In just a few weeks, the world will, will gather through media primarily in Pyeongchang, South Korea, for the 2018 Winter Olympics. Who all will gather to participate is not uh, clear yet with the current tensions on the peninsula. We do know that uh, the Russians won't be there because their team as a team has been disqualified due to a doping scandal. Uh, Their athletes can, if they prove themselves clean, kind of serve under a neutral flag. So there may be a few Russians there, but as a whole, their team won't be. Personally, I can't wait for the exciting sport of curling. It, it reminds me of old men playing shuffleboard in urban settings. <laughs> and I don't know for real how it ever came to be an Olympic sport. I, if you can ever tell me that, uh, just the story, I know the story, but I'll reject the story if you tell it because it should not be an Olympic sport. But if you're a huge curling fan, a curling aficionado this morning, I apologize, but I just had to get that off of my chest. I really do love the Olympics, however. For the athletes, uh, there are the best of the best. And usually, they're the best to ever have performed in human history. For the athletes and the events over time, they, they get better. Individuals are always improving. Times are always being broken. Scores are always being perfected. And over time, the entire sport is lifted by the work of the athletes always seeking to improve. And so the sport gets better over time. Attention is paid to improving in small increments, to pushing farther and honing the fundamentals, to learning to perform the givens of each sport better and better. And everybody related to each sport is dedicated to that end, from the athletes to the coaches to the trainers, all the uh, supporting apparatus that goes around each particular sport. Because of that, over time, marked improvement comes. And so you and I, when we watch the 2018 Olympics, will be watching the best in the world currently and probably the best in human history up to that point in these sports. The sports move forward and upward. Well, as we begin a new year, 2018, I want to challenge us as a church this year to to dedicate ourselves to improving in the fundamentals of what it means to be a church. And over the next three messages, I want to address this matter with you under the title, Advancing the Basics, because I think it's very important for us to be thinking about the fundamentals. And so in these next three messages, I, I want to focus upon those. I believe that we're on the verge of even greater advance as a church. But for that to happen and to be sustained, we need to continue to strengthen our foundation, continue to improve the fundamentals of what it is to be the church. And so that will be one of the central goals I will hold before us this year. And thinking about those fundamentals, those foundational things regarding who we are and what we are to do as a church, we are fortunate to have a very early description of what this looked like for the fledgling Christian community formed shortly after the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. We find it in a summary section in the book of Acts, and it's from this passage that we'll take our cue in this series and our cues as we go throughout this year. So if you have your Bibles, let's look to Acts 2, and I'd like to read verses 42 
through 47. The Bible says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Come to this um, summary statement here by Luke. We're about two months from the time when Jesus died and was buried and rose again and ascended. Pentecost has come. Peter preached his first public message, and uh, there was great results. And so Jesus dies, buried, rises, appears for 40 days, ascends. Ten days after that, Pentecost comes, where the church receives the Holy Spirit for the first time. And then we see the preaching immediately in the street of Jerusalem, Peter explaining what's taken place among this community of Jesus followers. And the Bible says, down in verse 41 of Acts 2, that when Peter preached, it says, those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And so you have a brand new church, 3,000 baby Christians birthed. And immediately we see them taking on a pattern here. Obviously, it's a pattern that would have been established by the apostles. And it was a pattern that had grown somewhat out of their experience as Jews in relationship to the worship of God. But now it's going to begin to change. And they take on this particular Christian pattern. And we notice several core expressions in their corporate church life. There are six or so of these, and we're going to look at two of them each week over the next three weeks. So what do we see this early group of Christians doing? What were their fundamentals that they were seeking to do that you and I need to continue to improve upon, to be faithful to our calling to be the church of the Lord Jesus in the 21st century? Well, what were they doing? Two things we see uh, today that we're going to look at. First of all, we see that they were a worshiping people. At their core of who they were, we find that this new church family birthed on the earth by the Holy Spirit, that they were devoted to worship. They were centered on Jesus and worshiping the great God who had acted to save them in the gospel. You know, worship is a word that comes from an old English word that means to ascribe worth to, to declare the worth of God, the majesty of God, the goodness of God. It's also a word that's related to our bowing before God with our bodies before Him humbling ourselves before him. It recognizes that he is set apart and that we're to adore him and his greatness and his mercy. And that's what characterized the life of the early church. As a matter of fact, we can say that the ultimate purpose of the church is worship. The ultimate purpose for which God has saved us and called us together, and the one thing that we're going to be doing when a lot of the other stuff is left behind, the one thing for sure we're going to be doing in eternity is we're going to be worshiping the Lord as His glorified, redeemed church. 
And we get to start practicing that here. And that is the ultimate purpose of the church, is to worship the Lord. And so in this passage, we see some allusions to their worship. In verse 42, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They ate together, it says, the breaking of bread into prayer. And most scholars would say that's not simply they're talking about eating together in their homes, as we read before, but it's the idea here of the early celebration of the Lord's Supper. In verse 46, we see that um, they don't have buildings to meet in. They start meeting in their homes, but they, they gather to that central place that has been the central place of worship for them throughout their lives as Jews. It says down in verse 46 that every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. And so they, they were going to the, to the temple courts, no longer participating in the Jewish sacrificial system, but still going to that familiar place where they, they gathered there. And there we find that they are praising God. Every day they continue to meet in the temple courts. It says that they were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. That means that this was done before the people of Jerusalem who were there, who were not yet Christians, but they were seeing this new community growing up before them. So we see that they were devoted to worship. And you'll notice in verse 46 that they were joyful. It says that they broke bread in their homes and ate together, it says, with glad and sincere hearts. They had glad, joyful hearts. And they're praising God out of that joy that they have. They're full of joy because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, right? The Spirit has come to live within their lives. When you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit takes up residence within you. And He begins to produce fruit in your life. And the fruit of the Spirit is love. Joy, right? Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, meekness, self-control. And so the Spirit is producing this joy, and they have joy as well because of the victory that they had found in the truth of the gospel. Their sins really were forgiven. They had been in this system where the sins never were fully dealt with, as the writer of Hebrews says, right? That there were the sacrifices going on all the time. Never stopped the priest offering sacrifices. Once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and offer blood for his own sins and then for the sins of the nation. But he had to do it every year. But when Jesus Christ died, remember the writer of Hebrews says that the, the curtain in the temple was, was split open. And now they have access to God. Continual access. They have a living Savior and high priest who ever lives to make intercession for them. They had been set free. And they knew that they now had eternal life, and they were assured of it, and they were filled with joy. Listen, there is nothing to which our church, our corporate church, to give more attention, more prayer, more preparation, and concentration than what we give toward public worship as God's people. It should be for us the highest act on our agendas each week as individuals and as a family. You know, the number one thing that ought to be on your calendar every week is I'm going to be in corporate worship with the people of Christ. That should be number one, that we're going to be worshiping the Lord and gathering with His people. And we should be focused upon that. And while there's much more we could say about the worship of the early church, I want to say at least three things here about it that I want you to see. Just trying to be brief this morning as we begin to talk about some things. First of all, their worship 
as we see this new community developing, was Christ-centered. We've been singing some wonderful songs this morning about all hell, the power of Jesus' name, right? That it's Christ-centered. Or what a beautiful name. Wonderful songs. And so they came together to worship the risen Lord. You know, one early church uh, critic uh, described the Christians, when Roman was described being the Christians, said that they come together early in the morning to worship Jesus as a God. And the worship of the early church blossomed and grew within the understanding again that the veil of the temple had been torn. They had access to God. And God has made himself fully known in the person of Jesus. It was fully God and fully man, the crucified and risen Lord. Certainly, God was worshipped as creator, as provider, as exalted, worshipped in all of the plethora of his names and the word of God. But after the coming of Jesus Christ, all of that was centrally focused upon the one and whom all of that was centered in God's plan, and that is Jesus, the name above all names. Read the book of Revelation, which John wrote, and you will find the center of attention regarding worship being upon Jesus. We come together to meet with our living Savior who indwells His people through His Spirit, and it is His name that we're to be holding up. Jesus is the Creator, is He not? Jesus is the Redeemer. Jesus is the Provider. He is the one who holds all things together. And He should be the center of Christian worship. His name should be the name we mention most in this room when we gather to worship, both in our singing and what's coming from our lips as we are here worshiping the Lord. It should be Jesus. I'm sure you're familiar with the story about Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish existential philosopher in which he was trying to bring a correction to how Christians thought about worship and he used the analogy of a drama to talk about worship and he said you know we have a wrong view of worship in the church basically to summarize his thought and that is that while many people see worship in terms of the people being the audience with the minister and the others the choirs orchestra Everybody else as actors and supporting cast. In reality, he said that that's all wrong. He said the ones that are on the stage is the whole congregation. And the leaders, we are the ones who are acting as prompters to give our best to the Lord. And that he is the audience. Now he's been criticized for that somewhat by people saying that, well... You know, that, that's not fully how we should think about it. God's not some bystander to our worship. And I think that's right. But like any analogy, it has its limitations. But there is a kernel of truth in it. That when you and I gather here, you're not my audience. And I'm not here performing for you, nor is the choir or anybody else. We're here working together to offer something to the Lord to worship Him, to declare His praises, to declare the truth about Him, to lift up His name, to be pleasing to Him. And for the Lord to receive that offering from us week in and week out. And so while He is not some passive observer, He is the one before whom we are presenting the worship service. 
And he is here to interact with us. Jesus responds to this in a wonderful way. He himself said that where two or three are gathered together in my name, there you will find what? What did he say you'd find? Him. Me, he says. You will find me in your midst. And as you and I gather and offer this to him week in and week out as the redeemed people of the Lord, we should be praying and waiting to experience the Lord Jesus in the midst as we engage him in worship uh, with our lives. And so that is, I think, a good correction. And then every element of worship then comes to be an offering to Jesus. Worship is not about me in the sense of me receiving so much as it is about me giving. And so we see here that that core was it is Christ-centered. Secondly, we see their worship had central elements to it. We don't have a, a right to, uh, to jettison some things from what we call Christian worship. We don't have a right to jettison the preaching of God's Word. And so as we look at the elements, the church developed their worship early on to incorporate various elements. We find in 1 Corinthians 14 some of the early elements there in the life of the church. But we also, in Acts 2.42, we see that they were giving themselves to the apostles' teaching. They came together to hear what would become the New Testament. They also, if you go to Ephesians chapter 5, as they gathered as God's people, we see that they, that they sang. Ephesians 5, verses 18 and 19. Paul says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And then he says, speaking to one another. So this is a, a collective meeting, right? Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. And so singing was central. Prayer was central to their public worship. We do not have the right to not have prayer as part of public worship. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul is telling Timothy how to order the worship service in the Ephesian church. He doesn't deal with everything, but he does deal essentially with the right teaching of the Word of God. And he deals with prayer when he says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. This was instruction here for public worship. And so we see that they gave attention to the word. They sang. They prayed. They also gave their offerings to the Lord. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, we see another aspect here of the elements of what they did when they came together. This is now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. So this is a pattern he's establishing. Now they're receiving an offering for the Christians who are suffering in, uh, in, in Israel. And so the Gentile churches are receiving a special offering. But I want you to notice verse 2. Of 1 Corinthians 16, it says, On the first day of every week, that's the Lord's day, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. 
saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made, that they have given their collection. They are giving in that church, in the life of the early church. They partook of the Lord's Supper, as we read in Acts chapter 2, in the idea of breaking bread. And we're commanded to do that. Jesus said, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. They were commanded to come together and participate in the Lord's Supper. Now, every service did not necessarily contain every element, but there was a pattern. And they seemed to worship in larger gatherings, but they also had worship, it seems, in smaller gatherings. They met in the temple courts. They met house to house. And we still follow that as well. We worship in this gathering, but sometimes in smaller gatherings of our church. Some of your classes sometimes may have times of singing and prayer and worship. And you should. I'd love to walk down the hall and hear a Sunday school class singing. Or in our ladies' Bible study meets during the week, there's worship. Or in retreats that we do in smaller gatherings, there is that worship. So we do it in smaller groups and in larger groups. Deacons' meetings are places where we can worship. Worship is something the church needs to be doing. It is to be central, and there are elements to it. And the final thing we need to think about in relationship to our worship is this. Worship also took on a a cultural expression. That is, as worship developed and spread around the world, it did not always look the same or sound the same depending upon the culture. And listen, it also did not always stay the same within a culture. Because cultures change over time. We don't worship exactly like, say, the Brazilians. For one thing, we don't speak Portuguese. Some of you may, but I don't. We don't worship in the style that they would worship. But I want you to know we also don't worship like 17th and 18th century Americans. For our culture has changed over time. And church culture has changed over time. You would not feel comfortable in an early Baptist worship service. You wouldn't. You went to a Baptist service a few hundred years ago, you'd say, I ain't going back there. So why do you know that? Well, Hugh and Ann Bromhead, who were early Baptists, who went with John Smith, it appears, when the separatists, some of them went to uh, Amsterdam, they... They said, here's what the early Baptist service was like. The order of the worship and government of our church is we begin with a prayer. After, read some one or two chapters of the Bible. Give the sense thereof and confer upon the same. That done, we lay aside our books. And after a solemn prayer made by the speaker, he propoundeth some text out of the scripture and prophesieth out of the same by the space of one, however, to three quarters of an hour. This morning exercise begins at eight of the clock and continueth unto twelve of the clock. The like course of exercise is observed in the afternoon from two of the clock until five or six of the clock. Four hours in the morning, three in the afternoon. How many of you would sign up to join? I want to be part of that. And notice there's no singing. No singing early on in that way. 
that would come later. And early on, it was basically reading or chanting the Psalms. You know, the Puritans did not want instrumental music, choirs, none of that, all that would come later. And in Baptist life, even singing hymns, something separate from the Psalms, did not come easily. If you picked up your little green hymnal there in front of you and went to the back and found the name of a man named Isaac Watts, you'd probably find some of his hymns there in your book. He lived from 1674 to 1748, and he's been referred to as the father of English hymnody. His hymn writing career initiated from an argument with his dad. Isaac Watts believed that the church was lacking New Testament truth and theology in its worship service by only singing the Psalms. And so his father gave him a challenge and said, if he thought he could write something better, go ahead and try. And so he, he took up the challenge. At 14 years of age, he composed the first English hymn to actually be used in church. According to pastor and religion professor Robert Cottrell, this hymn began Watts' pattern of weekly composing a new hymn for his congregation. So I have new music coming in. And it was just a gradual process, though, of debating how much of this stuff we're going to sing. And did you know that uh, the first American edition of Watts' hymns and spiritual songs was not published until 1739, 50 years after he wrote his first hymn? It took those Baptists 50 years to really embrace it. Because we are quick to change. <laughs> and so, as you think about Isaac Watts and the history of the Baptist and how worship developed, things change. And we have been in the midst of a major transition in the American church for over 20 years. But that transition is pretty much over, and it is done, and it is settled. And the church, I think, is settling back down into being comfortable with the various styles and strains of songs that we can sing. And there's a movement. I shared an article with the choir the other night. Perhaps a pattern of churches going back to one style, one, one service, with a variety of things done within it. And um, perhaps that's what's developing. And so as we develop in our worship, I want to say this, particularly in our main morning platform, we'll continue to utilize the central elements that we use now. We will have a choir, an orchestra, a praise team, but we'll also seek to be sensitive to our culture and how we work through the elements. And this will define us as we move into the future. But I'm committed that even if we go to multiple morning services, which growth may necessitate, we're a little lighter today than we usually are here in a very cold day in January with a lot of sickness and different things. As we moved into the late fall and up into the Christmas season, we were several weeks bumping 800 in Bible study, which is something that has not happened since we've been here in a sustained way. We moved off the plateau of 600 a long time ago. Our parking lot is full. We had a couple of weeks ago... Ten parking places left during this hour, and people were parked illegally on the curbs, and that's why you see a lot of yellow curbs out there now. And we're in the process of thinking about where we go with new buildings and facilities. We had a great year of additions to our church. We had a record year in the giving of our church. We have so many people visiting our fellowship, 
And it may necessitate us going to multiple services, but I want to say that if we do, uh, my commitment is that I want us to have one, one God-honoring worship service, the same style of what we're trying to do. And our desire to have Christ-honoring, spirit-filled, biblically faithful, expressed in sound teaching, worship of the Lord Jesus, week in and week out. And so as we develop this in the life of our church, we don't have to... You know, we're not getting uh, new tires, but uh, sometimes we do need some new hubcaps. And we may have some new hubcaps coming along the way. And what we must do is prepare our hearts and discipline our mind to die to the idea that I'm coming to worship for me or for you to do something for me so that we might come more alive to the idea of really meeting with Christ, offering ourselves to Him in worship within a culturally appropriate pattern. And when we do this, even unbelievers will be moved when they come in among us as they were in the life of the early church. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, when you were gathered, Christ's presence was there as you were worshiping him to the point that when the unbelievers were there, they would fall down on their faces to say, God is among you. And that's what we want to see happen here. And so we'll continue then to develop that pattern established some years ago when our church completed a vision and mission statement back in 2008-2009. It was approved by our congregation. It was a template by which we are working. If you've been through our membership class, you have covered this. And it guides our development for all that we're doing. And it guides our development of our worship. And in the vision, it says that it is the dream of a church that worships in spirit and truth, using the gifts and talents God gives to us with a variety of styles, yet driven by the centrality of the preaching of the Word of God. So we are committed to developing our worship uh, in that way. And you know, our desire is even in the interim period right now to grow our choir and our orchestra. If our orchestra grows, we can do even more, particularly if we can develop more brass instruments. We want to see more and more people coming into the choir. We've been seeing a lot of people join the choir over the past several months. You don't have to be a great singer. You just want to be a person who loves the Lord and wants to sing. They practice on Wednesday night at 7, starting back in the choir room. You'll find great fellowship and friends, and I encourage you to become a part of that. You don't have to be trained, just have a heart to want to worship the Lord. If you play an instrument that would fit into our orchestra and would like to try out for that, we would encourage you to do so. I so appreciate having, internally, people with a talent like Mark Sexton and Jerry Webster, who are leading us this month, Mark in the morning, Jerry in the evenings, and Jerry's the chairman of our search committee for our new worship leader. Pray for that team. I'm thankful to have these men here with us, but we're also going to be entertaining an interim candidate. He'll be meeting with you choir on Wednesday night, January the 24th. And so in this interim time, what I'm saying is I want to see our music not go anywhere. We want to keep growing the ministry, right? It might be a great time for some of you to explore it in this time of transition. And so worship is extremely important as we continue to develop what we're seeking to do. But then secondly, secondly with these fundamentals, the things they need to work to improve upon, we see also from the beginning of the movement that uh, this group had an outward focus. They were devoted to evangelizing. Peter preached, 
3,000 were converted. They continued to preach and to witness as they were going up to those temple courts, as they were meeting in their homes, as they were talking to people. The Bible says in verse uh, 47, it says they were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And it says, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. They didn't just have people saved in their worship services. They had people being added to the body daily. You know, while worship is the ultimate purpose of the church, evangelism, sharing the gospel, making disciples is to be the primary task of the church. And we must work to improve this in the life of our church in our outreach, in the number of people we're reaching with the gospel who are being baptized. We've been seeing that grow. We want to see it grow a whole lot more. You know, the key for that taking place is you and me as well, but you. So how can we improve this? Well, one, take advantage of opportunities we give you to be trained in the classes that Chase will offer. And we'll also offer classes for apologetics, that is, how to defend your faith, how to answer questions that people have. We'll give you platforms of opportunities to invite people that are focusing on evangelistic or apologetic emphasis, such as Christopher Ewan. What a great opportunity for you to invite a lot of people to be with us on that particular day. And we can pay for advertisement. We do that some. We are trending more now towards social media and how we put out the information. But you're the best advertisement about what God's doing in in the life of this church. Word of mouth, talking to people. Also, we will continue to have more outreach efforts like Canvas Anderson. We'll continue to develop new Sunday school classes for outreach. And we're on the verge of launching another class. And in your classes... Think about the fact that you exist as a Sunday morning Bible study class centrally to try to reach people. Your literature is written toward that direction. So pray about that. Strategize. Invite people. Use the literature where once a quarter it has in there a lesson devoted to sharing the gospel. And make that the day where you invite people to come and sit under the word of God. Make contacts. Your offering envelopes have a place on them for you to put down the number of contacts you make during a week. That's just a way of being accountable. Find people who are the least like you this year and reach out to those people to try to reach them with the gospel. Enroll people into a class. We provide little cards for you that wherever you are, you can enroll somebody in one of our Bible study classes right there in the restaurant or wherever you may be. Bring people to meet the staff after our services. So we have built a new welcome center out here in the front vestibule because that's the door where most of our traffic comes from for worship in relationship to new folks. And so beginning today, I and my wife will be out there and some of the other pastors will be out there. And essentially by spring, that will be fully staffed. And we want those front doors open. We want you using the front doors of the life of the building of this church. Uh, so that uh, we're going in and out, and the presence of the people is out on the sidewalk. But uh, bring people to meet us after the services, invite them and bring them, and we'll be doing some other things to give people a way to meet us and to uh, answer their questions. And then also look for people that are, don't look like they're lost or look like they are struggling. Don't be afraid to go up and talk to people. So I'm afraid they might be a member. 
Well, I have that fear too. I've introduced myself to people even after 14 years. We're members. Okay, I'm sorry. It's a small town. I don't, I try to know everybody, but sometimes I, there's still some I may not fully know. You hide out somewhere and then you sneak up on me and I meet you. But look for people as well that, you know, Spurgeon used to talk about when he would preach. He said, look for wounded birds. That is people that, that God may have spoken to their heart in that service. You may see them weeping or somebody that's struggling. You just never know what God's going to do. And sometimes I don't know what God's doing in somebody's life till later. I shared with you about a young man that was here from Canada last year. And uh, God spoke to him during our service. His sister's a member of our church. He said he wanted to talk more. I found that out weeks later. Called him in Canada. 15-year-old young man. He gave his life to Christ on the phone. And now in uh, London, Ontario, Canada, he's plugged into a church. He's gotten baptized. He's growing. And God does work in our services. And sometimes you're out among people and see things that I will never see. So look for those people and reach out to them. Think about having block parties in your neighborhood or home Bible studies for outreach. And we'll help you with those things. You know, I stand here today by the grace of God and the fact that my parents came to Christ because somebody knocked on their door, a pastor, and invited them to a special service the church was having. And that's where they met Christ in the late 1950s before I was saved in, uh, born in 1960. And so I just want to encourage us this year to make that central to our lives, that every one of us can play a part in seeking to evangelize and reach people with the good news of Jesus who do not know him. And if you can't do anything else, you say, I'm afraid to do anything, really invite people. Invite them. Invite them to sit with you. Take them out to lunch. Invite them to your home. Become a great inviting person. And so I want us to begin to commit to improving in these core things. We'll talk about four more over the next few weeks. But with these two today, to give ourselves more fully to them, to follow your leadership as we seek to lead forward. That's what we hope to do. And maybe you're here today and you haven't met Christ as your Lord and your Savior. We've been talking about worshiping Jesus. We worship Jesus because He's changed our life. And in talking about Him today, you've heard parts of the gospel that you and I need to be saved and forgiven. We've all sinned. And Christ Jesus, fully God, fully man, lived a sinless life where you could not. Died in your place. He took your punishment for your sins. Was buried and rose again. And ascended back to be with the Father. And God says, if you will trust me as your Lord and your Savior, just like these new Christians on that day of Pentecost, I will save you. I will forgive you of all of your sins. I will give you eternal life as a gift. I'll come live within you by the Spirit of God. And set you free that you might be full of joy. Maybe today you need to call upon Christ to be your Lord and your Savior. Maybe the Lord's leading you to join with this fellowship today. If you've been visiting with us, that this is where the Lord wants you to be. As you believe in who we are and what we're doing before the Lord. And so we're going to sing this morning, I Surrender All. And you respond as God so leads you. And I encourage you and challenge you and me that this make this a great year of worship and evangelism as Concord Church. Let's stand and pray together. Father, thank you for uh, this time we've had. We pray now that you would accomplish through this uh, invitation what you desire as we sing the words of this song, I Surrender All.
Uh, Lord, help us to be truthful uh, that we're going to, to do this to you. And that we'll surrender everything to you, uh, Lord, in seeking to grow in our worship and in our evangelism. And Lord, perhaps those who don't know you yet, for the first time to surrender their lives to you, to receive Jesus and the gift of eternal life. And we'll thank you for that. And we pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you.